The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. Well, if you will, look with me in Romans chapter 3 and uh, slip down to where we are in our study now in this uh, 17th study of Romans. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God abides forever by his grace and mercy. May his word be preached for you. Please be seated. In 1983, um, under the leadership of Dr. Barker and Dr. Tom Cheeley, I had the privilege to go as a missionary to plant a PCA church in Charlotte, North Carolina, as a daughter church of Briarwood. What I didn't know is almost simultaneously with that moment is a man who was an ordained officer here in this church got transferred from Birmingham. And so he showed up and helped us with our core group uh, when we got started. We had about 38 folks meeting in a modular unit. You say, Pastor, what is a modular unit? It's a double-wide trailer with the wheels covered up, so they'll let you stay in the neighborhood. And that's where we met, and that's where our worship. We had uh, people would come by and not stop. They'd just drive on because there were just so few cars. You only had 38 people. And so what we did is to give people a little comfort level in stopping. One person told me, in fact, it was Mr. Kirkman who found out that this daughter church of Briarwood was there. And he drove over with his family. And he looked and he only saw a few cars there that Sunday. And he said, you know, I'm not sure this is the right place. And um, he's kind of used to a full parking lot, you know. And uh, he said, I'm not sure this is the right place. And he said, you know, Mark, if we get out and go in there, they, they may pull out a box of snakes 
Uh, we, we may not ought to go in there. Well, we found out about that. So what we started doing is asking everybody, when you come to church, drive every car your family owns. And so we fill up the parking lot, even though we hadn't filled up the modular unit yet. But Larry finally came. His name was Larry Kirkman. He's now with the Lord. This last year, he went to be with Jesus. He became a good friend of mine. Uh, we became, in fact, very close friends. He was a, a wonderful businessman, a husband, father. Uh, and uh, he loved the Lord, and he loved the Lord's church. I always thought that was appropriate because his last name was Kirkman. And those of you who have any sense of, um, of the holy us, the holy nation of Scotland would know that that's a name from Scotland and it means churchman. And that's what he was, a Kirkman, a churchman. And he, we would meet about once a month for uh, fellowship and encouragement. I'd always ask him questions to try to learn from. He's a very smart man. And uh, so we'd get together. And one day he taught me something. He said, I want to give you a name for something that's very important. And he said, that's this. It's called vocational energy management quotient. And I said, wonderful. Now, what does that mean, Larry? And he said, that means when you get up every day, there's things that you do in your vocation you can't wait to do that you want to do. And there are some things in your vocation that you absolutely do not want to do. But those things, if you don't do those things, you'll never get to do what you want to do. So you muster the energy and you steward the energy to make sure you do what you don't want to do in order to get to what you do want to do. And um, I said, oh, I didn't have the name for that, but my mama used to tell me every morning when I got up, son, go do what you don't want to do so you get to do what you want to do. My mom already had this one. She just didn't have the name for it yet. Energy management uh, quotient. So vocational energy management quotient. So uh, that was something that I think my speculation, and I'll tell you this is speculation. I believe that's what Paul's been doing now for three chapters. He is going to something that he must do, that he needs to do, in order to get to what he wants to do. Do you know what he can't wait to do? He can't wait to use one word. And we're about to get there in the next week. But. Or however. <laughs> but. He can't wait to get to that word. Because when he gets to that word, he's, now he gets to talk to you about the good news. You see, the Apostle Paul has been wanting to get to Rome, to Rome He's energetic, he's eager, and he's unashamed to preach the gospel. But God keeps telling him no. Now, God's going to get him there through Roman imprisonment. But right now, God's telling him no. So he is doing plan B, which is to write a letter of an exposition of the gospel of God. Now, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. But the reason that the gospel is good news is because the backdrop and context of the gospel in Jesus Christ is extremely, overwhelmingly, challengingly bad news. And you'll never see the gospel is good news until you see the bad news. So what he has taken the time to do for three chapters, I know Paul can't wait to get to good news. But he also knows that you will never understand how good it is, how amazing it is, how, what did we just sing? Oh, how marvelous it is. Oh, how wonderful it is. This glorious good news until you understand 
the depth and despair. So what he has been doing is he piqued our interest in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it, the gospel, is the power of God. Now, why would he say that? There's something gloriously good news about the gospel being the power of God. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness. Why would he say it's good news that the gospel is not only the power of God, but the righteousness of God? Why would he say that is good news to everyone who believes? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Why would he say that? Well, then in chapter 1 in verse 18, all the way to where we are right now. And you've been with me now, I think it's either 9 or 10 sermons. He has been dealing with the bad news. Upfront, unvarnished declaration of the bad news. And now... We're in the courtroom, and now the divine judge and the indictment has been delivered. In chapter 1, verses 18 through, uh, verses 18 through 39, he brought all of the pagan world of Gentiles with the religion of irreligion to the bar of God's justice, and the verdict was guilty. Then in chapter 2, he brought all of the man-made religion and philosophical inquiries of of, uh, religious Gentiles and pronounced it hypocritical, inadequate, guilty. Then he brought the Jewish people who had been given the true religion and, and they had perverted it not, instead of using it as God designed it. What was true religion for? To send us to Jesus and to mature us to serve Jesus. But they took it and said, because we've got the privileges and the signs of true religion, true religion will save us. True religion can't save you any more than false religion can save you. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus. True religion had been around hundreds of years before Jesus got here. True religion had been given to the nation of Israel to point them to Christ. Then Christ comes. If true religion could save, why in the world did Jesus, why did God send his son Jesus? He sent his son Jesus because that's where true religion points you and it matures you in Christ to serve Christ. But it can't be Christ. It can't save. Baptism can't save you. Lord's Supper can't save you. Worship services can't save you. They can point you to the Savior, but they can't save you. Only Christ can save. So he has taken all the Jews, all the Gentiles. He has brought them before the bar of God's justice. Now comes the divine indictment. In fact, if you would, take your Bibles and take a look with me at that opening verse that I read. And go back there one more time. What shall we say? Are Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that underline all, both Jews and Greeks. That's the whole known world from Paul's cosmology, from Paul's life and world, world and life view. Jews and Gentiles. That makes all of, all of humanity. All, both Jews and Gentiles, are what? Under sin. Now, he has chosen those words carefully. He did not say all 
sin, although that's true. He didn't say all have sinned in this part of the text, although that's true. He didn't say all are sinning, although that's true. He didn't say all will sin, although that's true. He carefully chose this phrase, all are under sin. The weight of sin is upon every single one of us from the moment of conception until the judgment seat unless God intervenes with a new birth and we're born again to be set free. Unless God intervenes, we're all under sin. Under sin. Under its guilt. And no amount of man-made religion can deliver. Under its shame. And no amount of behavior modification can deliver. Under its guilt. Under its shame. And under its dominion. We are in a word. Or two words. Helpless. And hopeless. Under sin. You know in your own language, don't you, how you use it? You know, things are going pretty good that day. You say, well, how is it going today? Oh, I'm on top of things. Well, spiritually, you're not on top of things. You're under sin. It's guilt. It's penalty. It's power. It's practice. It's shame. And you're helpless. And you're hopeless. And there is no exception. All are under sin. That's where Paul has brought us. We're in the divine courtroom. Paul has made sure in these three chapters that we do not miss the reality of the first order doctrine of the gospel. What's the gospel? Good news. The first order doctrine is bad news. In Romans 2, I won't ask you to turn back there, but you feel free to check me. In Romans 2, he said this. He said, there is coming the day when we must all appear before the judgment seat. To give an account to God who will render to every man according to his deeds. As according to the gospel. Do you understand? This isn't he's talking about judgment and sin to set up the gospel. This is the foundational doctrine of the gospel that tells you how great the good news is. If you don't get this, you will never come to Christ. If you don't get this, you will never come to Christ to save you from his sins. And I want you to understand Briarwood as a church exists for what Christ has appointed us to exist for. And that is to proclaim 
evangelistically and disciple men and women with the whole counsel of God wrapped in the truth. That's our calling because the gospel isn't Jesus is going to get you out of debt. The gospel isn't Jesus is going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. The gospel is he went to the cross to save you from the dominion of sin. To eradicate its penalty, to deliver you from its penalty, its power, increasingly from its practice. And one day when you go to be with him, he'll deliver you from its presence. You shall call his name Yahshua Jehovah saves because he will save his people from their sins. That's what he does. That's what the gospel is. And that's why it's so important for us to understand this foundational doctrine to the gospel. We are helpless, we are hopeless, and there is absolutely no exception. No one can save themselves and no one can save anyone else. That's why God sent his son. What we could not do, he most surely does. For all who put their trust in him. And now you hear the indictment. And the apostle Paul says. I want you to feel this indictment. So he draws a profile for us. He paints a picture. He puts a portrait out. Of this indictment. That all are under sin. Jew and Gentile. He draws it out for us. And he makes this indictment. From the scriptures. In other words. This isn't something that. Paul was just having a bad day and was taking it out. He says, I am explaining something to you that the Old Testament has been declaring both in whisper and megaphone all throughout the Old Testament. So he goes to the Old Testament, the prophets and the Psalms, and he begins to pull out some of the quotes that describe, that, that, that brings a profile, a portrait of what it means to be under sin. And half of them are prescriptive. This is what is prescribed about what it means to here are the precepts of what it means to be under sin then he then half of them are descriptive here are the metaphors to show you what it looks like when someone's under sin and he goes back and he begins to pull them out and they are amazingly clear they are astonishing uh, astonishingly powerful and they grab us and we can't explain them away we just simply have to take a look at them and see if we can absorb it. Now, I'm not going to go into it in great detail, but I am going to ask you to walk through it with me. Go back with me to verse 10. Notice what it says. This is linear. This is logical. He puts it together. One builds upon the other as he quotes, as he brings this distillation. It's not exhaustive, a distillation of quotes from the prophets and the Psalms. Look at what he says beginning in verse uh, 10. As it is written, in other words, this isn't something new. This has been revealed in the Old Testament, and I'm highlighting it so you will see how much you ought to rejoice in the good news of the gospel and flee to Christ today. Here's what he says. None is righteous. Well, if all are under sin, it stands to to, uh, reason that the word none should be there. None is righteous. No, not one. 
Not a single person is righteous in this world. None are righteous. We are all. Now, we're not as evil as we would be. We're not as sinful as we could be. Why? That's called common grace. You see, our total depravity isn't lived out in absolute depravity. We don't do as much evil as we would, as much evil as we could. Why? Because God, in common grace, restrains men from being as evil as they would be or could be. But that doesn't make them righteous. Well, pastor, isn't, isn't it true that people have done good things? Yes, they've done good things. And that's what we would call civic righteousness. But we have not, we have not performed that which is righteous before God. None of us are perfectly obedient to the law of God. Can I just give you an example? What is the greatest commandment in the Bible? What is the greatest commandment? Anybody give it to me? Do you know what it is? You shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, to do righteous to your neighbor, you've got to know your righteous relationship with God. So may I ask you something here? Uh, God has been here speaking today. Even with the inadequacies of a preacher, he promises to be present and speak. Anybody here, your mind wondered? Go ahead, cut your phone back off. You mind wonder? Have you loved the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind? And if that's the greatest commandment, if you haven't done it, that's the greatest sin. There is none righteous. No, not one. You're not going to get by graded on a curve. The soul that sinneth shall die. And there is none righteous. No, not one. Well, that stands to reason. That leads us to the second thing that he profiles. The second thing he profiles is this. No one understands. We don't even, it just makes no sense. Brothers and sisters, listen, I was, I was, raised, I was raised in a Christian home with Christian parents, Christian grandparents. I was I'd taken to great churches that preached the word of God. And It didn't make sense to me. Why? I didn't want it to make sense to me. Why? Because I was in rebellion against God. That's why. No one understands. All of a sudden at age 21, it made sense. Why did it make sense? Listen to me. The information did not change. It was the reception that changed. Eyes to see and ears to hear. Eyes to see and ears to hear. That's what changed. It wasn't the, it was not, it was the blinded eyes were no more blind. The dull of the hearing was no longer dull. Instead of now not understanding, I couldn't get enough. I'll never forget the day I committed my life to Christ. Went home and read the New Testament. Would you like to know how many times I avoided reading the Bible for 20 years? Now I couldn't get enough of it. Now I'm looking up in the paper, what good preacher is going to be here this week? That was something that, that what happened was not the information change, it was the reception change. Because up until then, no one understands. You don't have eyes to see, ears to hear, or a mind to comprehend, or a heart that desires it. Number three, no one seeks for God. 
No one seeks for God. It's really interesting. I ride by and I see. Now, please, I'm not. I'm just sharing my heart here. Don't rebuke me too much. I'm sure I'll get a few rebukes here. But I ride by and I see seeker-centered worship. And I automatically have two disconnects there. Number one, I thought worship had to be God-centered to be worship. Not seeker-centered. Not believer-centered. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about what is it that gives praise and pleasure to God according to the elements that he has designed in worship. Then the second thing is this. I keep reading the Bible and it says no one seeks for God. So who can show up at a seeker-centered service? No one. No one seeking for, look at the language. Seeking for what? God. Let me tell you what they are. You say, well, I know somebody's a seeker. Well, let me, let me share this with you. No, you don't. You know people who in their sin are seeking the blessings of God that only come from God. But they're not seeking God. They don't have room for him. They're God. They're more than happy for peace. Peace. They're more than happy for purpose. They want the blessings of God, but not him. They already have a God. It's themselves and the idols and idolatry that they've arranged that aren't working, which is why they're seeking from God what they need, but they're not seeking him. That's why the text tells you, not that people aren't seeking what God gives. They're not seeking God because there's no room for him. They already have their God. It's themselves. That's why the text tells us the indictment is no one seeks for God. But not only that, look at what else he says. He says, none seek for God and they have all turned aside. They have become worthless. You know, when I was um, 21 and came to Christ, there was a diva who used to sing. Her name was Peggy Lee. She was on the way out. And, uh, but she had this song that she sang called, Is That All There Is? And I didn't particularly like her style. Pretty much, uh, I thought the Righteous Brothers were a Christian group. And uh, so, uh, so I didn't like her style, but boy, boy, did it resonate. She kept going through. They told me this. They tried this. I tried this. I tried this. I tried this. And it's nothing but empty. It's the song of vanity. Ecclesiastes. Let me ask you something. America's got talent. Why are you here? Because I want to be famous. Is that the ticket? Go take a list of the most powerful, richest, famous, applauded people that everyone says, if I could just be that movie star, if I could just be that athlete. And go take a look at how much money they spend on therapists. Take a look at the Suicide rate. 
it doesn't work. Together, we embrace emptiness, worthlessness. We're just like when I was a kid, I mean, when my children were kids, we used to take our family vacation. This guy allowed us to use a place, a really wonderful place called Figure Eight Island off the coast of Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, we, when we got there the first day, there was always two things that we would do. Number one is bury dead in the sand. So they would dig a hole, I'd go and lay down the hole, and then they would bury me in the sand. I usually would negotiate to keep my face above sand. And uh, so that's one of the things. Then the next thing we would do is we'd take all that displaced sand. And unfortunately, there was a lot of sand displaced after you buried me. And we would start building. The, we'd work all afternoon. We'd build these wonderful sand castles. And then um, and with the, you know, the, the tide is out. And we'd go in. We'd go in to sleep that night. Wake up the next morning. Guess what? Sandcastle's gone. Most of us are spending our whole life in what is going to be swept away with the breath of his coming. Just like a sandcastle with the tide. Together, we embrace uselessness. And as we build our sandcastle, we don't have time for that which is really important. In fact, he goes on to say, he says, uh, they've turned aside, they've become useless, no one does good. Now, I know you say, well, wait, wait, Harry, people do good. No, good is not only an external act, it's an internal motivation. You remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, what did he call him? Good teacher. Remember what Jesus said when he said good teacher? What did he say? Why do you call me good? There's none good except God. He doesn't, you don't know who I am, yet you're flattering me with this term good. And I'm telling you, there's none good. In other words, Paul is just drawing upon Jesus' word, which is drawing upon the Old Testament. There is none good. No, not one. Well, you know, what about the guy that dies for somebody? What about the person that intervened? Well, those are external good things, but good things have an internal motivation, and that is the glory of God and selflessness in life to the glory of God. And that's missing. Goodness is that which brings the truth and the glory and the majesty of God in this world. And Jesus gets to it with this guy, didn't he? He said, well, what can I do, good teacher, to inherit eternal life? He said, okay, if you want to inherit eternal life, but what you're really saying is you want to earn it, go do all the commandments. Anybody remember what he said when he said go do all the commandments? Anybody remember? What did he say? Oh, I've done those. (laughs) I check those off every day. He said, okay, well, let's get specific. He goes to two commandments. Here's what he says. Okay, then go sell all that you possess and follow me. You remember what it says next? The rich young ruler goes away sorrowful because of his many possessions. It's not because he's got possessions. It's because his possessions have got him. And he violates two of the commandments, the first and the last. He have no other gods before me and do not covet. And Jesus exposes it. On the outside, we would have called him good. But the reality is there is none good. No, not one. Then comes the, then he, then he moves Then he moves from these prescriptive profile to a descriptive by using metaphors. Look at what he says. Their throat is an open grave. 
They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, here we are in just a couple of verses. Throat, tongues, lips, mouth. Interestingly, when he is describing those of us who are under sin, when he's describing us under sin, he goes to metaphors and all of them are around the communication. Throat, lips, mouth, tongue, all of them are right there. Why? Don't miss this. Jesus tells us a man speaks from what fills his heart. If you want to know the condition of the heart, just listen long enough. And the throat opens up and you see decayed corruption in the heart. It's an open grave. The lips invent ways, the tongue invents ways to deceive. The venom of asp, is it, you ever seen, a, a, if you've ever studied an asp, it's a snake with a deadly bite. And it's got these pockets of venom that are unleashed when he bites. We've got these pockets of venom in our heart. The heart, here's what, the, here's what these metaphors are telling you. It's not the mouth. The mouth is exposing what's in the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem with the heart from which the throat begins to get filled and the lips speak and the poison comes and the words deceive. And their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I was reading one of the commentators and I just, I mean, it's an amazing thing. I used to be able to just say to my wife, I say, okay, it's date night. Let's go pick out a movie. Date night. I've got to go home and go back to some channel that's only got movies in the 60s. You know, tell me, how in the world did this, how in the world did the, how in the world did movies get this coding? Adult language. Mature audience. When in reality, they're talking about the most adolescent language as possible. Just absolute cursing and bitterness. I don't even understand how we were able to tell a story on film before 1960. Now now this gratuitous, but what do you see? You're seeing the heart of a culture. You're seeing the heart of people. What fills the heart comes out of the mouth, including cursing and bitterness. You know, I grew up in a home. I don't, my grandmother and granddaddy, I don't. I mean, I, probably the worst thing I ever heard was, oh. And it wasn't because they were better people. It's because God had got their heart. And therefore, their mouth began to be filled with what filled the heart. Well, then he goes on to say, let me just get this and uh, then we'll close with a a takeaway. He says this, their feet are swift to shed blood. So that leads to a lifestyle of, of violence, murder. Oh, Harry, wait just a minute. I mean, we're not those barbarians. Do you know that in the last 2,100 years, you know the safest century? Safest century was the first century. Do you know what century has more killed? Just wars. Just wars. 
Do you know what century has taken more lives than any other century? The one you just left. And the 21st is on track to be greater. Go check it, Korean War. Go check World War I, World War II, Spanish-American. Go check Vietnam conflict. Go check all the other conflicts and tribal wars. More people were killed with man-made violence in the last century than all 20 centuries before added up. Jesus is coming soon. And I'm not even counting the hundreds of millions killed politically by Stalin, Lenin, Pol Pot. I'm not even counting the 65 million we've killed in America in the womb and called it a right. Their feet are swift. If there is anything documented as to the truthfulness of the Bible, it's the sinfulness of man. All are under sin. Not all sin as much as they could because of God's common grace, but all are under sin. None righteous, no, not one. None seek for God. Together we become useless. Our feet are turned to, to, uh, to the path and ruin of misery. The way of peace they have not known. They say peace, peace when there is no peace because they will not deal with the Prince of Peace who is Christ the Lord. Then comes the most horrific indictment of all. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Fears of everything else. But there is no fear of God. That one fear that brings wisdom, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, men and women have no fear of God. Well, I can tell you right now, I'm saved and I do. I can't even imagine appearing in front of this God who is glorious. This God who is majestic. This God is holy. I thank God I can go with assurance because of the blood and righteousness of Christ when you're written in the Lamb's book of life. So what is the... So if you will, just look at one more thing. Now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. There is, Paul has said very clear, there's a judgment day coming. We're headed there. You're headed there. No, but, no one will cancel that appointment. No one can move that appointment. No can, can forestall that appointment. Every one of us will be there. Please know I have shared with you what Paul has revealed to us that Jesus talked about more than anybody else that day. And in that day, we will all stand before him. And if you're apart from Christ, there is the divine indictment. And on that day, you will have nothing to say. Every mouth is stopped. Every defense strategy has been dismantled. All are guilty. All stand under the righteous judgment of God in that day. On that day, there will be nothing to say. On that day, the righteous judge shall stand and give the divine indictment. 
and then the divine, appropriate, righteous judgment. Hell. Utter isolation. Unending. Unendurable torment. Endured. The mind ever remembering. Parents. Grandparents. And preachers. Who pleaded with you. Come to him on this day. That day. You have no defense. Come to him. The judge who left the bench to go to the cross to save you. Come to him who is bringing judgment on that day. Who came 2,000 years ago from the bench of justice to the cross. Not to bring judgment, but to bear your judgment for you. Come to him. On that day, you have nothing to say. But on this day, there is one thing that you can say. The thief on the cross said it. Remember me. The tax collector said it. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Whoever this day shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hear me, that day you can't speak. You won't speak. Silence is in the court. The only thing you will hear is the weeping and gnashing of teeth. But this day you can come to him who on that day went to the cross for you so that on the day of judgment, you might hear this. Well done, good and faithful servant. And on that day, not with perfection, will be one who is clothed in the righteousness. Instead of none righteous, clothed in the righteousness. Instead of under, none understanding, one who hungered for the word of God. Instead of turning together as fugitives from God, you turn together as the assembly of God. And instead of worthlessness, you love nothing more than gathered worship on the Lord's day and then bearing witness for Christ on every day. On that day, that portfolio won't describe you. What will describe to you is the growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ who took you out from under sin and put you under grace. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This day is a day that you can cry out to God. Be merciful to me, the sinner. That ringing phrase, and I'm closing prayer, that ringing phrase always is in the back of my ear when it says there is no fear of God before their eyes. And I go read Isaiah 5, in which six fears that overtake the ungodly who will not come to Christ. And then in Isaiah 6 is the seventh fear. As Isaiah looked up to heaven and he saw the angels praising God, the saints praising God. And he saw in heaven 
the trembling of the thresholds in the presence of God, even inanimate objects have got enough sense to reverence and tremble. We've been in his presence for the last 55 minutes. And we ought to be like Isaiah, who then says, Woe is me. I am an unclean man with unclean lips. And the Lord took the ember with the tongs and placed it upon his lips and cleansed his heart and said, Your sins are forgiven. Will you now go for me? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the moments we could be in your word together. Thank you for Paul's painstaking commitment to bring us the truth of the bad news so that we might see the amazing truth of the good news that this judge is the one who left the bench of judgment to go to the cross to bear our judgment. That we in that day would be written in the book of life and the portfolio of life would reveal the righteousness of God and the power of God so that the helpless and the hopeless don't have the birthright of sin but have a new birth born again, a new record, a new heart and a new life because this day we call upon the Lord. If you have never called upon him, this day call. If there's a reason why you don't want to, I would be more than happy to hear that. I would love to talk with you about it. But I tell you, there is a way now. There will be no way that day. It'll be silence. But this day there is a way to call upon him who is the way, the truth, and the life that you might have everlasting life. You want to pray with someone today? Up here in the front, to my left and right, will be individuals who will be glad to confidentially pray with you. May I invite you to come and pray. And then, oh God, for those who have come to Christ, have called upon his name for salvation, would you send them out this day and this week to bear witness to the world? The world does not seek you, but you have sent us to seek them, that they may hear Christ by the Spirit of God through the people of God. Help us go to seek and save the lost through the glorious gospel of Christ. Good news, new heart, new record, everlasting life. In Jesus' name, Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.